Westmount, let's just continue grabbing our Bibles now. Take them and let's turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. This is our study that we are working our way through. We're in the fifth chapter, midway through. Romans chapter 5, and we're picking it up in verse 6. So turn there, Romans 5, verse 6. And as you're settling, and you're turning there in your Bibles, and as we think about opening this passage today, I want you to think about this question, if it was posed to you. If someone asked you to describe love, what would you say? Imagine this week someone comes to you and they say to you, what is love? A very honest, sincere question. I want you to think for a moment, what would you say to them? What is love? What is your love? More, what about this, if we were to get a little more specific? What if they said, what does love look like? So they ask more than what is love. They ask, what does love look like? Help me understand what love looks like. They say this to you, how is love displayed? How do you demonstrate your love? What would you say? Of course, the stores have been telling us how love is displayed, right? This is the season. For a few weeks now, in fact, since Christmas, really, love is chocolates and cards and special dinners and so on. In two days, on Tuesday, that is when we will see love displayed. That is an answer to the question. On that day, love is displayed. Maybe your friends have been helping you out or can help you out with the what does love look like question. Your friends have weighed in on this, right? What does love look like? And, and their definition of love demonstrated, and I think you know this, is all about an expression of how love is displayed to you. How love is displayed to you. That's the key. How should you be treated? How should you feel? What you should get and so on. That's love displayed. So love is about you. My love then, if it was to be defined that way, my love then is a result of what others do to me. It's, it's felt, it's experienced and so on. It's receptive. Such is love as we are told today. It is a feeling, it is a day It's about you. Unfortunately, to the undiscerning ear, that all sounds right. It all sounds very good. However, it is unfortunate because although those all sound good, they are not love displayed. They actually aren't. And I recognize that reality is elementary to some, and maybe to others this may be enlightening as we think through love today. But for all of us, regardless of our love considerations this morning, providence brings us to love today. Love today, not just because it's Valentine's Day this week, but because of our arrival in this passage. This is where we touch down. In Romans 5, let's read it from 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, indeed, you have bestowed your love and presented it in the manner of the cross and your sent son. Lord, let us receive that truth, see it clearly in your word. And Father, may it go deep and may it impact the lives we live after hearing your word today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You see in these verses plainly, this is not just love or any love. Look at them. This is God's love. This is God's love, and here it is, God's love displayed, God's love shown. The one who is love shows love. That's this text. And beloved, this is so very helpful for us in the love confusion that surrounds us. This passage will teach us, as we'll see what love is. Paul says here, this is love. Look at these verses. Paul, and and what we need to see by way of opening, Paul does not think of God's love apart from what? The cross. He doesn't think of God's love apart from the cross. The apostle here shows us that the death of Christ is the proof of God's love. As such, some overall teaching and instruction immediately this passage gives is this. As such, love is giving. This is the Father giving up his only begotten Son. You know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He loved so he gave, John 3.16. As such, this passage will teach us that love is giving at a cost. Love is not just giving or picking something up to add. Love gives at a cost. This is the Son laying down his life. Yes, this is the Son's shed blood to take away sin. Think of Hebrews 9 tells us that an only shed blood can atone for sin. And with that love, it's not just giving. It's not just giving at a cost. Love is giving at a cost to the undeserving. See that? And this is all throughout this passage. To the undeserving. This is not costly giving for those that are worthy. Right? That's not what this is, as we'll see. But this is costly giving for those that don't deserve it at all. The weak, the ungodly, the sinner, the enemy. This is God's love. So let's dig in to God's love and our first point and see the power of God's love. The power of God's love. Recall where we've been in chapter 5. Paul unfurling the peace with God that we looked at over the past few weeks. The peace with God, the believer now has with Almighty God, because look at verse 1, chapter 5, because they have been justified by faith. That's us, Christian. It's the implications of the gospel of God. Christian, you are justified. You are made right with God, and such that means that you have peace with God. And peace, remember, as we learn, this is a new standing that you're on. You're on a standing of grace. Peace through suffering then, peace that matures us, and peace that includes hope. Peace with God gives you hope. And hope that is guaranteed how? Look at verse 5. 
Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Subjectively, we could say, subjectively, we have God's love poured into our hearts, securing our hope. Now Paul will turn in the next few verses here to show us God's love objectively, felt in our hearts, but stated truly and rightly by way of the cross. Meaning, whether this is felt in our heart or not, and we recognize we have our moments where we don't feel it, it doesn't matter, Paul says, this is true. This is what God's love is. Look at verse 6 as we just continue. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. To demonstrate the power of God's love, Paul is going to use four terms here. We've touched on them already. Four terms. The first two are found in verse 6 alone. And these four terms are important for us because they give us the context the platform of God's love displayed. So as we learn about God's love this morning, let's keep in mind the object of God's love. This is going to inform us about the love of God when we see the object of God's love. But not just the object, here it is, beloved, the nature and the character of the object. That's the key. So it's not just an object. What I want us to see as we go through this, and I pray you'll see this in the text, is the objects described in different ways with different words. And as such, we ask now, what is the nature and character of those God's love is bestowed on? That's the question. Look at verse 6. While we were still weak. That we, first of all, continues with the all of faith. Paul has all of those with faith like Abraham in view. So this is you, Christian, the ones of faith, While we, faithful ones, were still weak, in a position of weakness. Weak there, if you look at that word, it speaks of moral weakness. This is spiritual weakness. And we need to be clear on that, because what does this not mean? It doesn't mean when we were down and out in our circumstances. The world will tell you that you're here this morning because you're just a weak person, right? You're just weak and you need a crutch, you need your Sunday morning crutch, you're just down and out and you found your way to church. That's not what this is talking about. It means you were in a state of spiritual weakness. It doesn't mean that we were weak in society, that we're disadvantaged, or even that we're ill in some way. That's not what Paul means by using the word weak here. It means what Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You can't get more weak than dead. Weak means we had no ability spiritually to be right, get right, or turn to God. We were spiritually incompetent, spiritually impotent, spiritually inert. In that state at that time, and look at it, that right time, that fullness of time, we could say, in Galatians 4, Christ died for the ungodly at that right time. Here we see the second synonym for the object of God's love, and it's given there, the ungodly. Do you see that? Ungodly there, that word means unworthy. This word points to our lack of fitness and our worth in one sense before God. Not in a image or God's image sense, but again, spiritually, are we fit to stand before God? 
And this makes sense. We've already studied that we're all created in the image of God, yes, but fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 3, verse 23. Yes, indeed, we are not fit in that way. So in that state of moral weakness, that ungodly position of falling short, in that helpless state, look at the text, it says, in that state, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, before moving too quickly here, let's make sure we're understanding this and we have a hold of it because we'll need it to move forward. The Bible, the Word of God, is telling us, verse 6, that Christ did not die for the morally strong. The text is saying that Christ did not die for really fit people, really good people. As such, by implication and application, Christ did not die for those that cleaned themselves up. Why is that important? If you are here today and have been resisting God, if you're here today as part of your own agenda to get yourself right before God, if you are here today just waiting, biding your time until you're strong, or if you think you need to start doing godly things to earn God's love, you are wrong. You are weak And can never be strong to warrant God's love. And you are very wrong because you are ungodly and will never be worthy of God's love. You'll never be fit for God's love. But this letter says that for those that are God's, truly foreknown by him, as we'll see in Romans 8... For those weak ones, for those ungodly ones, listen, that hear God's call and respond by way of letting go of self, repenting and turning to God. For those, the text says, Christ died. For those. This is the power of God's love. Church, can we meditate on that for a moment? Our love is so often directed toward who? Our love. Think about our love, not God's love. Our love is directed toward who? Let's be honest. The strong and the godly. That's who we love, right? We love the strong ones. We love the godly ones. Of course, we would never say that. That won't play in church. But we say they must earn my love. That's what we say. And even then, with so-called optimal conditions to love, even then we fail to love rightly. Paul anticipates this human condition, of course, and pauses to state this. Look at verse 7. He knows this. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. How true is that? Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. If God's love is demonstrated in Christ dying, then Paul thinks of our acts of dying. He knows what we're thinking. Well, we know of heroic acts of dying. And for us, one would scarcely die for a righteous person. In other words, it happens. But it's very, very rare. And maybe you're thinking right now of those scarce accounts of one dying to save another's life. It's a heroic tale, indeed. But in those accounts, often the hero saves another hero. That's why it's a great story. A righteous one saves another righteous one. And Paul then, in that, presses the point then to say, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. What Paul 
is doing here. He's moving from the scarce to the situational. And the ancient reader would know this. At this point, the listener might put their hand up and say, Yes, I know a case. I know a civil case. I know a legal case. In the ancient world, it was not unheard of for one to lay down their life for a good person, quote-unquote, in the eyes of society, defined by society, specifically a benefactor. That was a very legal transaction. One would lay their life down for a benefactor. In fact, they were legally bound to do so. So they would say, yes, I know of those cases. In the Jewish world, it was recorded of lives given for law and nation. What the book of Maccabees records that, 2 Maccabees. That was one thing and likely the good Paul has in view here. That's likely what he has in view. You know these cases, he's saying. You know the good laid down. However, Paul's point is that although we know those righteous and good cases, what is absolutely unheard of, reader, with God's love is this. It's a life given, a death presented for the unrighteous. See that? You don't know that, Paul says. You don't know that. And to illustrate just how shocking this would have been to the initial audience, let's go into another apocryphal book, Sirach, an intertestamental book. Now, again, they would have been very familiar with these works, not the Bible, but they were treated sometimes as if they were sacred as such. Well, Sirach records a lengthy passage. Now, just listen to this, explicitly stating that while one is lawfully, note the word, obligated to help the good, one is lawfully not obligated and should not help the wicked. That's right in their texts. In fact, I couldn't believe reading this week, it's right there in law code. You shall not help the wicked. That's what they would have believed as law. The ancient Jewish extra-biblical text says, do not help the ungodly at all. So you can imagine how shocking This passage is. Paul recognizes here then that all manner of dying for the righteous ideals, right, would be present in his listeners. He knows they get that. Yes, Paul, we can die for the righteous. They understood that kind of love. What again would be foreign to them and still is to us to this day, beloved, is any notion of dying for the ungodly. It's unheard of. We can't fathom that. Yet see here the power of God's love, beloved. And this is God's love, not your love. This is God's love. God's love is the love, the only love, by the way, that loves the weak and the ungodly. Now Paul has given us the statement of fact of this love. He's given us the comparison, God's love compared to our love. And now he's going to cap it in verse 8. Look at it with me. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love the contrast there. That's your kind of love, human being, the scarcely dying for the righteous. That's your kind of love, but God shows his love for us. In other words, this is the presentation of God's love. This is God's love displayed. This is how God's love is proved. End of verse 8. While we were sinners... Christ died for us. Here we come to the third synonym for the object of God's love, sinner. And you might be looking at verse 8 and asking right now, isn't Paul saying the same thing he just said in verse 6? It seems to be saying that, and we would say yes and no. 
Yes, in the sense that the idea is exactly the same. God's love was demonstrated this way. In what way was it? Same idea. You'll grab this. By acting in a moment of our weakness, our ungodliness, and here, our sin. To give us purpose, something that we did not earn or deserve or could muster up ourselves. In this verse, however, the Holy Spirit's words are given to ensure we understand the depths of not just who we were or where we were when Christ died for us, but they're given to us so we understand what we were doing when Christ died for us. Do you see this? This is the full picture of God's love. And what were we doing? We were practicing sin, verse 8, while we were still sinners. The human author that God used to write these words, you need to know, the human author used was embroiled in sin himself when God called him and converted him. Acts 9 verse 1 records that Paul, then Saul, listen to this, Acts 9 verse 1, was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's what the text says. At the very moment, at the very hour of his conversion, So in other words, he was saved in the throes of sin. That's while Paul was executing sinful deeds as a sinner. In that moment, God intervened and showed up on that road to Damascus. And you know the account, knocked him to the ground. And of course, you're probably familiar with the account when God said to Saul, Saul, finally you have your act together. You're strong now. It's about time I want to talk to you, Saul, about some ministry prospects I have for you. Not in our Bible, right? Not at all. In fact, God the Son said, you are persecuting me right now in the very act of it. That's the implication. And further, the implication in that text in the account says, stop. Go into the city. Stop what you're doing right now and follow me. And he gives him instruction. Beloved, one in the throes of sin, trying to take down and murder those following the way, the Christian, yet intervened by God, given a new direction in his life. Let me tell you, that is the power of God's love. Love that acts for the weak, for the ungodly, for the sinner in the midst of his sin. Now, acting is one thing, but before we move on, we must consider the act How did Christ act? What did he do? What demonstrates the power of his love? You see it in verse 6, and you see it in verse 8, and it will be referenced again in verse 10, and it's this. And we'll have so much more to say on this as we move through the rest of this chapter, but it is this simple two-word phrase in one hand and four-word phrase that we will talk about in a moment. Christ died. Christ died. And we will see further, it wasn't just a death. Christ died for us. Christ died, and let's zone in here. So we said Christ died, that's the act, but here we go. Christ died for, on behalf of us. We just can't spend enough time meditating on that. Remember, as we studied in this letter previously, that death was an atonement, meaning Christ's death, far from not 
just an example in one sense. It had some of that. Christ's death, though, was this blood shed for us. Perfect blood for us. Why? To satisfy and appease God's wrath. This is an intercessory death. As Gabe read this morning, Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sin of many and what? Makes intercession for the transgressors. This is atonement. This is substitution. This for that. This is a death and a price on behalf of those that have true faith in God. God's love did not just do a kind act for the weak, something nice for the ungodly, or something memorable for sinners. That's not what's going on at the cross, beloved. No, the text says over and over and over again, as the New Testament reveals, that Christ died for someone. Christ died in someone's place. Let's think now. Let's put on these thinking caps and think about this. Christ died not just a general death. Not the the Galatians who just placarded for all humanity to see. Here is the death of Christ. And again, as we've said, this is not just as an example. Well, maybe you can go and do the same and lay down your life for a good cause. No. And Christ died for someone, transactional, meaning he didn't pay the price for all humanity. He can't have done that. No, if Christ died for someone, if Christ's blood appeased the wrath on them, then it means if the price is paid for them, they're no longer headed where? Eternal separation with God. It means the price has been paid and they're free if Christ died for them. And as we know, there are many headed to eternal separation. Matthew 7, Matthew 25. Saints, here it is. Christ died for, on behalf of the ungodly. Christ died for us, Christian. It's stated so plainly in verse 8. Look at it. Christ died for us. Very specific. This is direct substitutionary atonement here. Groups defined Christ's death for believers. Christ's death then is a substitution for those that follow Jesus. It is Christ's blood, not ours given. This is the exchange we've talked about at length, by the way, not just in Romans. This is the exchange of our sin, our unrighteousness. Here's the transaction. Traded in. For the righteousness of God. I I pray that each time you think about that, it gives you wonder. Your unrighteousness and your sin, here's the transaction, and you get the righteousness of God. Not just, by the way, the price for salvation that keeps you eternally with God, but to live in that righteousness every day. 2 Corinthians 5.21, listen. For our sake, there it is. The faithful, beloved, for our sake he made him to be sin, see the transaction, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, church, listen, Christ died as an atonement, a substitution for us, for the called out ones of God. 
As Christ died for sinners, verse 8 means that Christ died in the place of sinners. We don't die, Christ died. Christ died for us means that Christ died again. Take this with you today from this text. Christ died and bore God's wrath so that you won't. You won't. Christ's death is the substitution for us. It's Christ's blood. Incredible truth. Christ died in the place of those called by God, the repentant ones before God, hence the sanctified. This is the testimony throughout God's word. 1 Corinthians 15.3. Listen as Paul delivers this to the Corinthians. This is the foundation of the testimony. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. From Corinth to Thessalonica, he says the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ who, Paul goes on to say, verse 10, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Not just Paul, but Peter, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, here's your exchange, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Beloved, God's love is not just the testimony in our hearts, verse 5. And you're going to need more than that, right, in the days you live. It is that, and praise God, it's a subjective felt experience in our hearts. Praise God, verse 5, it's that. But the testimony is also in the word of God objectively that Christ died for us. Insert reason why. One of many, 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 we should be reading the Word of God every day because the subjective lets us down every day, doesn't it? And we need to be reminded every day, Christ died for us, Christ died for us. And there it is, the testimony in Scripture. Christian, let it be your daily testimony. And when it is that, you will share what the Apostle Paul shares. The same spirit, small s, that he shares these words. And what is it? When he says this, listen to Galatians 2.20. Can you say this? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now listen to this testimony. Listen to the pronoun change. Who loved us? No. He says this, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the love of God, Christian, on you. For you. Indeed, it isn't us, but Paul pulls it here in this impassioned letter to Galatia and says, he loved me and gave himself up for me. Me, you, us, church, the called out. By the way, the weak, the ungodly, the sinners, Christ died for us. That's the power of God's love. Let's now consider with the power of God's love, the peace in God's love. That's our second point. Paul will now return to the peace he introduced at the beginning of the chapter. And he uses the example of peace with God to present, look at verses 9 and 10, two equations of God's love. Let's consider them as a whole first. Verse 9. 
Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Given here are two logical conclusions of the truth and, again, objectivity of God's love. Each are anchored. I want you to look at verse 9 and verse 10. You'll see them. Each are anchored right in the middle with this two-word phrase, much more. Do you see that? Paul uses a line of argumentation here. It's along the lines. It's in the stream of, you're familiar with it, the arguing from the lesser to the greater. But he does something different with it. But first, let's understand this argumentation. You know Jesus uses this argumentation in his teaching. Let me read you this from Luke 11 as he's teaching his disciples. He says this in Luke 11, verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? In other words, no father is going to do that, right? For if he asks you for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? In other words, you're going to love him rightly, give him the good thing. Then he says this in verse 13. If you then, who are evil, do you see what Jesus is doing? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, and here it is, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see that? This is an argument from if this is true of the lesser, how much more true for the greater? And we understand that line of logic. That's the same, by the way, much more construction here in Romans. But what Paul does is he's going to thread it another way. This is just beautiful what Paul is doing. Paul's actually going to argue from the greater to the lesser. And he's going to prove the peace in God's love. In other words, if the big thing, the big boulder, the big impossible has been done, how much more the lesser would be done? That's what his line of argumentation is here. We will see him give the greater thing, the hard thing, to prove the lesser. So let's look at verse 9. It says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, there's the greater, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And you say, well, how is that greater and lesser? Let's think of it. The greater thing is that we've been justified by his blood. That means now we're no longer standing under a boulder or under the wrath of God. We're in a different place, are we not? We're in a place and a foundation of grace. We have a brand new position. Our justification means we're in right standing before God. So, since we're justified by his blood, highlighting the high price of justification, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because to be in a wrong standing with God means what? The wrath of God remains on you. In other words, if we have the greater, the right standing before God, the new secure position, then it is a lesser thing to be saved from the coming wrath of God. It's a sure guarantee. Remember that wrath of God currently remaining on the ungodly, John 3, 36. We looked at that before. And the wrath of God revealed in this age against the ungodly who suppress the truth, Romans 1, 18. We have a place now in which we stand that takes away the wrath of God. Said another way, if God's love has secured us peace here and now with his first coming, then God's love has secured us peace in the future at his second coming. Promises of God are sure. This is peace already experienced in our justification and the peace to come when he delivers us from his wrath. 
That is the peace in God's love, and it's given with a compliment. So that's one way to look at it. Then verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul unveils a fourth term here to describe the object of God's love, and here it is coming at the end of this section, a new term. And it's this. He says, We were enemies. Now that word is a strong word. And it's used deliberately here because it immediately conjures up its own picture. This is adversarial, enemies. This is a posture we had against God, hostile to God. And of course, as you've learned also, by way of our sinfulness, it's a posture from God to us as well because we're in wickedness. So the hostility goes both ways. And that is what we were in this posture of enmity with God. And while we were in that hostile state toward God, look at it. While we were in that, while we were enemies, we were what? Reconciled to him. So this is the same idea as before. While weak, while ungodly, while sinners, while enemies. In other words, while you're in this lesser low state, then this greater truth, Paul argues from here. Not only while enemies, look. While you were in that state of being an enemy with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And I want you to note the emphasis here. Look at it. Not just a death. Look at what Paul does. Or not just even Christ's death. What does he do in verse 10? The death of his son. Man, to give up your son for an enemy. In light of this great truth, once enemies, now reconciled, hostility ended. Think about that. In light of that great truth, now believer, this is true of you. Colossians 1 says this so well. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that captures the sin as well as the enemy, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, that's Christ, in order Here's the justification to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amazing. While you were an enemy in the throes of your sin, he has done this thing for you in his body of flesh in order to present you justified before him. If then, Christian, we are reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death, how much more will we be saved by his life? In other words, if death is conquered... If we are reconciled by a son's death, then listen, how much more will we be saved by a son's life, his conquering death? Do you see that? This is the resurrection squarely in view here. This is life after death. But let's pull all the glory out of this verse. No leftovers here. Look closely. What is God's word saying? Look at verse 10 again. If... God has reconciled us to himself when we were enemies. How much more will he consummate our salvation in glory now that we are his reconciled friends? Do you see that? We are no longer enemies. How much more now as friends will he consummate the deal and be at the table, not just this table that we do each week, praise God, the table to come. And no longer will we be on the outside, alienated, hostile. We'll have a seat at the table as his friend. How much more? That's Paul's point. This is beyond a guarantee then. 
We're no longer enemies. This is logical, certain grounding for our hope ahead. That's the peace in God's love. And all that's left is our response. Verse 11. Look at it. This portion ends with this verse. It says this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In verse 2, if you remember verse 2, we learn that we rejoice, we boast in hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, we learn with peace with God, when we have it, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Here now, in verse 11, we see the rejoicing is in who? Look at it. In God himself, through Jesus Christ. And it's the appropriate response. This is the only appropriate response to boast in God. Because we are reconciled to God. Beloved, once you truly contemplate and grasp God's love, you rejoice. You rejoice. Now, if you're not rejoicing this morning, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not rejoicing. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling to praise. You just don't have it in you to praise. Maybe that's you. You cannot rejoice. You can't do this in verse 11. You can't rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you would have received reconciliation. As such, what is going on? Well, it may be that you are not reconciled to him. It may be that. Maybe you're not reconciled to him, and that's why you can't glory and boast and rejoice in God. And if that is you, I echo what my brother Barra said this morning. We call on you to make today that day that you lay down your arms and you surrender and you repent. God is calling you to turn from your rebellion and come to him. That could be true of you. However, for most of you, I would suspect a second thing is afoot. If you're struggling with praise for God's love, maybe that's you. You are a genuine saved Christian, maybe saint. You simply need to be reminded of God's love for you. We live in a world that wants to blow the love of God cold in your heart. And go out today very mindful of this this week, and it's going to blow ice over your subjective reception of the love of God. Going to think everything can't be proving the love of God in my life. So we need reminders. Downcast soul. Contemplate anew all the riches that you have in Christ. Can you do that before you leave today? Beloved, you were once weak. You were ungodly, a sinner and an enemy of God. And through Christ, listen, you are not only justified. Through Christ on that day, you have right positioning But listen, through Christ, you now do not face, nor have it remain on you, the wrath of God. Weary saint, it's not just a matter, not that this is a small thing, that you are reconciled to God. That's a great thing, isn't it? But did you know, or maybe you need to be reminded today, that reconciliation means you will rise again and live his life with him. Have you thought about that recently? Does that cause you to give praise and rejoice? In reply, some still today, and I resonate with this. You may still say, Jason, fair enough. You have to say that. Jason, I know that. I I know that. 
I know those things. I've been taught them all my life. But I still struggle today to rejoice. Well, if that's still you, I submit you're struggling, maybe. And I'm with you in this and needed this because you're trying to do something you don't understand fully. To rejoice fully, listen, beloved, is to love rightly. You cannot rejoice fully unless you love rightly. And the question is, do you really understand God's love? Or is God's love relegated to those Sunday school Christian books, the elementary things of God's love, the small little things, the things of man? Or do you look in the pages of Scripture and see the love of God displayed and say, that's love, and that then would be love in my life? Maybe you understand all the book knowledge from the Sunday school right up to the high theology. Maybe you know all of that about God's love seen today, but do you really and truly understand what God's love looks like? Not only in you, but through you. And this is the key. Christian, God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. But for it to pour out of your heart into others, you must know how it flows. And this is where there's great confusion, not just because of what's coming on Tuesday, not just because of what your friends define. Sometimes in our own heart we get confused. So let us end by applying this text in the most practical way possible. What does God's love look like? Not just receive, but listen, also given. He gave you his love to give. Let us never forget this, and I want you to look at the cross. This is our instruction, the cross. Number one, God's love is hard. God's love is hard. It's not an easy love. Loving God's way is not easy. It's, is it easy to give up your son? No. It's hard. God's love is painful. Listen, God's love has to brush with death to bring in life. As we saw in our text today. Westmount, we know this right now in this season. God's love is hard. It's painful. It is not popular. But listen, it is God's love. Two, God's love gives. So often when we get in our funks of downcast soul, it's what are we getting, God? God's love gives. God gave his son in his love. Beloved, if you're to love like that, as you can in Christ, it means you will give. And you will give yourself. You will give yourself. You won't ask what you're receiving. You will just give. Love is not defined by the things others give you, the things that make you feel good. Love gives. And three, God's love costs. Beloved, it doesn't matter what you hear in the world. It's what you see in God's word. There's no such thing as cheap love. Christ gave what? His life. Christ gave his life. Church, if it is real, hard, giving, authentic love, then listen, it will cost you. You will pay a price to love rightly. Love does not have a public relations manager to smooth things out. Love takes hits. Love takes a toll. Love does not sweep trouble under a mat. Listen, love confronts it and love deals with it, as we see at the cross. And love does not come risk-free. We want everything with risk drilled to zero, don't we? 
I'll only do it if. You need to make sure this doesn't happen. Love, true love, is never risk-free. In fact, if you want to be hurt, love. Love is dangerous. Love will hurt you, and love will leave a scar. Beloved, love has a price, as we see at the cross. It always does, because Christian, if you love rightly, when you love rightly, it's because of the first love given, God's love. And that's the picture, the hard, giving, costly love of Christ for his sheep. Westmount, if God's love is demonstrated in the death of Christ, then our real love, our true love, can only flow from that same vast fountain. In other words, if this is what love displayed looks like, if this is what real love looks like, the cross, that means that our love must look the same way as well, if it's true. It must flow from our peace with God and union with Christ. So maybe if you're trying to love another way, you will struggle. Because maybe it's not God's love. It's your love. How would we describe love displayed then? As we always do here at Westmount, I think for it to often last as we walk out the door, we need to sing it, don't we? Here is love. Listen, here is love. Vast is the ocean. Loving kindness is the flood. And listen, what is God's love? When the prince of life, our ransom, what? Shed for us his precious blood. That's God's love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, how can we comprehend your love for us? While we were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies, you sent your son to die for us. God, we can only rejoice. Enable us to do that and respond rightly as we begin that now. In Christ's name, amen.